from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scaff in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is a brand new kid to show biz with knowledge i persevere but find out do me a favor let me in here we can find around the filling space and drop the base with a taste of all right first of all i'm back people i know it's been a while and i apologize for the delay uh what can i tell you school video games windows 7 i, I won't even bore you with all the details but suffice it to say i'm back and I, I told you from the start it was going to be sporadic, so it, hey, look, it's sporadic, especially when the school year heats up because stuff gets crazy, and if I feel pressured all week to do stuff all the time, then Saturday comes, and that's the one day I've set aside to say, you know what, I'm going to have a day off right here, and sometimes I feel like doing the syncast, and sometimes I feel like it's more of a hassle, so... I can't promise it's going to be every week. I don't know what to tell you. Deal with it. I'm a busy guy. Um, yeah, lots of stuff obviously been going on in the world. If you don't know about Malala, uh, whatever her name is, the Afghanistan woman, she's insane. Oh, no, uh, not insane. Awesome. Uh, Malala Yousafzai. Yousafzai probably is how you say I don't know how to say it. Anyway, um, I have that in the current event, so I don't need to talk about it. Presidential election coming up. You know what? The more I hear, the less I care about it because... Uh, I'm seriously considering voting for Jill Stein, but I just don't know, to be honest. I don't want to do things that will help Mitt Romney get elected, but I'm also sick of having my vote taken for granted, and I feel like the Democrats don't really care what people like me think, and I'm sick of that. So, I don't know, we'll deal with it, but... Again, it's you know you take five minutes to figure out who you're going to vote for, and then you spend most of your time doing other stuff. Meanwhile, everything on the news is just about the presidential race, just about the presidential race. But there's so much else going on in the world. Chevron is first up in my sights this week. Uh, they, oh my God, Chevron's got some chutzpah. It's unbelievable. The The news story over the past couple of weeks has been about the U.S. Supreme Court refusing to hear this case from Chevron. And I was like, I never heard about that. So I read about it in Business Week, and then I went and did some research. And the whole thing is this incredibly unbelievable tale of corporate greed and first world neocolonialism going down to Ecuador, screwing up the country. This Okay, Texaco back in the day was the company that did it, and they polluted everywhere, destroyed land, you know, uh, groundwater for indigenous peoples living in Ecuador, and just completely screwed up the entire environment. Chevron bought Texaco in 2001, and then, you know, when you, one company buys another one, they acquire all of the liabilities of that company that they're buying, right? So Texaco had fought against the whole thing. Okay, step back. Ecuador had said, they, they people of Ecuador are like, you polluted the hell out of our country. You ought to pay to clean it up and apologize and, you know, restitute us. 
they wanted to sue Texaco in a U.S. court, but Texaco said, no, absolutely not. It, it's supposed to happen in Ecuador. Any legislation like this should happen in Ecuador. So they fought and demanded to have the case moved to Ecuador out of the U.S. courts. It did, and then as soon as Equ the Ecuadorian courts found that Texaco owed the people of Ecuador like $13 billion, suddenly Texaco starts going, oh, uh, it's illegitimate because it was an Ecuadorian court. And that's Chevron's line right now. So the article from Business Week said this. The headline was, Chevron fails to squelch $19 billion Ecuadorian verdict. Despite backing from the National Association of Manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Chevron failed to convince the Supreme Court to intervene in a pending pollution lawsuit in which a provincial court in Ecuador in 2011 imposed a landmark verdict against the oil company. The damages assessed against Chevron now total $19 billion, making the judgment the largest of its kind in history. So then they give some history about it. It began in 1993 when American lawyers representing residents of the Ecuadorian rainforest sued Texaco in federal court in New York, accusing the U.S. company of turning a large swatch of the Amazon forest into an industrial wasteland in the 1970s and 80s. Texaco fought the case on procedural grounds for nine years, ultimately persuading the federal judiciary in the U.S. that the dispute belonged in Ecuador. In 2001, Chevron acquired Texaco and stepped into its shoes as the defendant, even though Chevron had not operated in Ecuador and Texaco had departed the Andean country in 1992. Ecuador did not provide the hospitable legal venue that the oil company anticipated. A sequel case began in a Rainforest Courthouse in 2003, leading eight years later to the historic verdict favoring the plaintiffs. Chevron, meanwhile, returned to the federal court in New York with what amounted to a counterattack against the plaintiff's legal team led by an American solo practitioner named Stephen Donziger. So, again, this is just insane because Chevron apparently thought that they would... Uh, rule the Ecuadorian courts would rule in Chevron's favor. They thought they might be able to, who knows what, convince the courts in Ecuador to rule in Chevron's favor. But it didn't happen, and then Chevron started insisting that the ruling had no bearing on a U.S. company. Uh, and that's the definition of chutzpah. You look up the definition of chutzpah, and a Wikipedia article has a very interesting story. This Talmudic scholar said that chutzpah, or Yiddish scholar, um, Chutzpah is that indefinable quality where uh, a, a boy who kills his parents throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. So that's that's what we're dealing with here. That kind of you know sense of entitlement and and an amazing uh, uh, nerve that people have, especially companies. So there's a push right now to get Chevron to take uh, take responsibility for what it's done, and uh, you can go to Chevron Toxico dot com and there's a lot of information there. there's a movie about it and uh, i'll link it to my website uh, i mentioned this pakistani schoolgirl, uh, absolutely an incredible young lady malala yousafzai yousafzai i'm probably saying it wrong anyway um she had a blog with bbc and she was talking about what life is like in the swat valley you know the place where we send our flying robots to kill militants right so she was writing about what it's like to be a girl there trying to go to school and of course the, the taliban doesn't like the fact girls are going to school so they tried to assassinate her. They walked on her school bus and they shot her, but she lived. And now the headline was, uh, Pakistan angry over Taliban shooting of schoolgirls. This is from the New York Times. Doctors on Wednesday removed a bullet from a Pakistani schoolgirl shot by the Taliban as Pakistanis from across the political and religious spectrum united in revulsion at the attack on the 14-year-old education rights campaigner. A Taliban gunman singled out and shot the girl uh, on Tuesday, and a spokesman said it was in retaliation for her work in promoting girls' education and girls' rights in the northwestern Swat Valley near the Afghan border. So, you know, what, what, what a bunch of scumbags here 
uh, the Taliban. And, you know, I think some people would say that, well, there's a reason for us to keep bombing. But you know what? Let's ask her what she thinks the U.S. ought to do. Let's ask her family what they think is in the best interest. And I don't know that flying robots dropping bombs on everybody is necessarily the answer. Um, Jason Gallagher sent me a very interesting article about an earthquake in Spain that was apparently triggered by groundwater removal. And this article is from Yahoo News. And uh, it says, groundwater removal triggered the unusually shallow and deadly earthquake that hit Lorca, Spain in 2011, according to a new study. Scientists have known for decades that pumping water into the earth can set off small earthquakes. But this is the first time that removing water has been identified as an earthquake trigger, researchers said. Both the size and the location of the quake were influenced by groundwater pumping, the study found. In California, there's been a very interesting uh, legislative push. It's a ballot initiative that's been going on in California. It's called Proposition 37, and it would require labeling of GMO food, genetically modified organisms in your food. Don't you think that's something you ought to know about? But, of course, the food companies, Monsanto and Archer Daniels Midland and Kraft probably and Coca-Cola, I don't know for sure all the companies that are involved, but Democracy Now! had a very good report, including Michael Pollan, the guy who made Food Inc. and the guy who wrote that book and the omnivores dilemma and a bunch of other stuff he's a really cool guy uh so watch that democracy now piece and you know to put it briefly the the problem is this look if if foods that contain genetically modified organisms gmos if they're labeled people won't want to buy them and that's been true across the world uh however the people who grow genetically modified organisms say that oh you know what this is improving yields and we're going to have more food for everybody. Well, of course, we know that the the problem is not a lack of food on the planet right now. The problem is that we're not getting the food to who needs to get it. Uh, So that's a bunch of hogwash about GMOs are the key to solving world hunger. And meanwhile, we don't really know what the long-term health effects might be of these genetically modified organisms. So a lot of people say, you know what, I shouldn't have to take a gamble with the food I eat. And at the very least, we all deserve to know what's in the food we're eating, right? I mean, that's a basic square one type thing. But the people who are growing them, these frankenfoods, quote-unquote, you know, they don't want to let people know what they're eating. And that's totally bogus. So if you're in California, I know i got lots of listeners in California because they hear me playing that Tupac sample. California knows how to part. Come on, get down. Yeah, uh, yeah. vote yes on Prop 37. Jason Gallagher also sent me a very interesting article about a cardboard bicycle that could change the world. And there's a very interesting video of this thing in motion and how he made it. Uh, an Israeli inventor has come up with a way to make a bicycle almost entirely out of cardboard and so inexpensively that he thinks retailers would only need to charge about $20 for one. The inventor, Izhar Gafni, believes the bike could be a boon to the world's most traffic-congested cities and help people in remote parts of the third world get from place to place. He's reached a, pr- a deal to start mass production in a few months, Gafni tells Reuters. And, of course, when I first heard that, I'm like, what? Cardboard? You just cut it out of a cardboard box? But, of course, the thing to keep in mind here is that it's industrial-grade, very thick cardboard. And he's cutting frames out, and he's treating it with waterproof paint that's uh, resistant to heat and to water. So, 
Uh, it could, it could, you know, the fact that it's cheap because cardboard is cheap, even when it's like very thick cardboard, and it's durable. And yeah, I think this could be really awesome because it provides new opportunities for people who don't have a lot of transportation, and we take it for granted. I think those of us who live in places with decent transportation, but we shouldn't take things for granted, like we saw in Hello America, that book about the Jewish family coming over to the U.S. after the Holocaust, and there was a whole thing about why don't you just get a new shoe? And she was like, why don't you fix it? And like, we don't fix things in America. And uh, it was all about, oh, God, please never let me take for granted uh, something as simple as a comfortable pair of shoes. Respect, Ma. Oh, here go the tech knocks. Chabam. Move from the gate now. Cash moves everything around me. Green, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, yo. in the economics file this week. First up, Tavis Smiley had the former chair of the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Commission, something like that. Uh, and he, so her name is Sheila Blair. She is a very interesting interview. I encourage you to take a look because she's been involved, you know, since before 2008, she's been involved in these discussions and deliberations at the highest levels. And she has a lot of interesting things to say about how the process of the bailout happened in 2008 and the whole Wall Street crash thing. And one of the most important things she says in this interview is, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the exact quote, Tavis Smiley doesn't provide transcripts the way Amy Goodman does, but whatever, I, I have so much love for Tavis Smiley, I'm not even bothered by that. But uh, so she said, Sheila Blair says, why don't we require government regulators to take a lifetime pledge never to work again in the industry they're regulating? Which makes perfect sense because the problem with, is this thing called regulatory capture. What happens is that it, people work on Wall Street and then they go into the regulation agencies and they know they're going to get a job on Wall Street again after they leave the agency. So what they do is they, they oversee regulation or rather a lack of regulation and lack of oversight. And they make it so that nobody's really watching these banks or anybody who is watching these investment firms or whoever. Uh, the, the people who are watching are people who don't really care what they do. Uh, or at least they don't care if they break the law, commit fraud, things like that. And they skew the rules in their favor. And uh, so she's saying, look, if we were to say you have to promise never to work for any of these companies in the industry that you're regulating, that would cut down on the regulatory capture. Now, would there be other ways that people would try to, you know, the companies would try to get a hold of the brains of people working in the regulatory industries? Uh, yeah, maybe, but you know what? Let's plug this hole and then see where the water goes next. And I'm not one of these people who believes that no matter where you plug the holes, the water's always going to find a way through. That depends on how well you make the dam, all right? And, and so this is a good place for us to start plugging up the holes in the dam. Do they play by a different set of rules? Well, you know, according to this next piece I found, yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a, a former investment banker and lobbyist who is now retired named Jeff Conaton, and he just put out a new book. And I would be interested to read it, but it sounds like he's kind of apologizing for certain things. But, uh, it, but his main point is, and he wrote a piece on his blog, uh, jeffconaton.com, that says, Mr. Vice President, please don't say that all Americans play by the same set of rules. They don't. And again, this guy would know because he's been in the middle of it, uh, both on the government side and on the lobbying side and the investment banking side uh, for years. Uh, so here's what he wrote. After the savings and loan crisis of the late 1980s, hundreds of SNL executives were jugged, fired. Uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, I thought I had a funny joke there, but I didn't. Wah, wah, wah. No funny jokes this week, people. It's all seriousness all week. In February 2009, before a Senate committee, then-Deputy FBI Director John Pistole 
testified that the fraud in the financial crisis, quote, dwarfs that of the SNL crisis. Yet, the Obama Justice Department didn't indict a single Wall Street executive. Out of the article, I'll say again, I've said it a million times, this book right here, Predator Nation by Charles Ferguson, uh, it names the names, it explains everybody, you know, well, it names a lot of names of people who, probably not everybody, but uh, a lot of the people who committed the most egregious fraud, the executives who oversaw criminal activity, they're all there in print. So anybody has questions about, did anybody really break the law? Yes. The answer is yes. Back to the article. The report by, there was a report by Lehman Brothers Bankruptcy Examiner and the Senate Permanent Subcommittee of Investigations report on Washington Mutual strongly suggests that when competent and independent fact finders look at what took place in the financial crisis, they find substantial evidence of unprosecuted fraud. Later in the piece, he writes, another truth is that bank regulators were often at the scene of the crime. They not only failed to stop Wall Street fraud, their knowledge of it effectively immunizes potential defendants who can claim in their defense that government officials knew what was happening. This attitude, in which laissez-faire becomes laissez-frauder, you see what he did there? It's pretty clever. Starts at the very top. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke and Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner knew years ago about potentially criminal bank behavior in the LIBOR scandal. Their response was to do next to nothing. So there's some more proof that the government's asleep at the switch and refusing to prosecute the people who committed the criminal activity on Wall Street. Meanwhile, uh, there was another interesting article in Business Week called ExxonMobil versus Dodd-Frank. And the Dodd-Frank bill, if you don't know, was the one that was the, the very weak, tiny little adjustment to government regulation that was going to try to stop the worst crimes that happened on Wall Street after 2008. It does almost nothing, but that which it does do is already being attacked by the titans of industry. So the Business Week article is titled ExxonMobil versus Dodd-Frank, and it says Section 1504 of Dodd-Frank would use Securities and Exchange Commission rules to require resource companies listed on U.S. stock exchanges to make timely, detailed disclosures of the tax and royalty payments they make to governments worldwide. Anti-poverty groups such as Oxfam and Publish What You Pay have long argued that such transparency can help reduce corruption in oil-rich, thievery-plagued places such as Nigeria and Iraq by giving local media and civil society the hard data they need to ask where their country's cash is going. Out of the article. Again, you know, we hear a lot about how corruption so endemic and the biggest problems in Haiti and Africa and Indonesia and other places is corruption. Well, okay, and it might seem like, you know, well, what can we do about it? It's just corruption. they got to find out how to deal with corruption in their country. Well, here's an example of how we could do something by giving the civil society groups the information they need. But, back to the article, the companies who are fighting against this thing argue that the proposed rules would be, quote, excessively burdensome. In the words of Patrick Mulva, ExxonMobil's vice president and controller, Big Oil's greater concern, as Mulva wrote in a letter to the commission, is that 1504 would have a detrimental effect on the global competitiveness of U.S. companies, end quote. And this is that old chestnut about how, uh, well, companies in other countries don't have to issue these reports and release this information, so they have a leg up on us in a competitive sense. Fine, let's make everybody around the world release this information. Or you find some other way to be profitable. I'm sick of hearing about competitiveness because competitiveness is the answer to anything. No matter what you say as a worker or as a member of a democracy, the answer from the business class is, that would hurt competitiveness. If you think that people who make the stuff ought to get a decent wage, well, that's going to hurt competitiveness. If you 
think that a company that is nurtured and supported for decades by a certain community has some sort of debt of obligation to provide for that community once they're up and running? That's hurting com competitiveness. And it just makes me sick. Business Week also had an interesting article called Why Women Earn Less Than Men a Year Out of College. And, of course, the whole argument about m women getting paid less than men, a lot of people will come back with, well, it's because they pursue different kinds of careers and they choose to have children and blah, blah, blah. Never mind the fact that the men are also having children with their wives, but they don't have to sacrifice as much because they don't have that nurturing instinct that mothers have. Blah! Anyway, uh, so here's what the article says. Even when women and men are in practically identical situations, their earnings start to diverge just one year out of school. That's true across most sectors of the economy. One year out of college, female teachers earn 89% of what male teachers earn. In sales jobs, women earn 77% of what male peers earn. Women who major in business earn, on average, just over $38,000 the first year after graduation, while men earn just over $45,000. Quote, about one-third of the gap cannot be explained by any of the factors commonly in understood to impact earnings, write the AAUW researchers Catherine Hill and Christiane Corbett. Later in the article, uh, so the question is, hang on, out of the article. The question is, is this a question of bias? Is this because there's institutional sexism and discrimination in the workforce? Well, that's where we come back to this part later in the article. Everyone knows that bias exists, but it's basically impossible to measure, particularly when the bias is unconscious. Skip to the later in the article. The authors cite a recent experiment in which male science faculty members at a research university were asked to pick a starting salary for a laboratory manager position. The scientists, who were provided with the same resume and qualifications for each applicant, ordered a higher starting salary to the male candidate. End quote. So this mirrors the uh, research project that was done several years ago, I think at MIT. Don't quote me on exactly where it took place, but they, they did a thing looking at race and hiring practices. And what they found was that uh, people who had sent out same resumes, uh, one set using so-called white names and one set using so-called black names, the people who had the white names, quote-unquote, they got called back for job interviews like twice as often as the people with supposedly black names. And... You know, what does that prove exactly? Well, it proves that there is this unconscious bias, that this systematic thing exists, and we have to struggle against it. And this is why I hate affirmative action, but I hate not having affirmative action even more. Because to say that if we didn't have affirmative action, everybody would simply be judged based on their qualifications, that's hogwash. It's hooey. It doesn't work that way, okay? I'm sorry, but that, that's not the way the world is. So... How else are we going to adjust for this unconscious bias that obviously does exist and causes a real problem for us treating each other fairly? And on the Naked Capitalism blog, run by an awesome lady named Eve Smith, she's really cool, they had her on um, Le Show, the Harry Shearer podcast. Uh, it's a really good show he does. And actually, he's one of my inspirations because a lot of times he just sort of reads news articles out. And I'm like, hey, I could do that. And the people need to know about the can eat more. Uh, anyway, Eve Smith runs Naked Capitalism. And they I had to unsubscribe because she posts like 15 very long blog posts every day. And eventually my feeder just got clogged with all of her stuff. And I would read maybe one of her pieces a day. And I know I could just delete all the rest, but it became to the point where I was just drowning in stuff. So I tried to visit the site once in a while. And there was a very interesting piece that came up called 
The headline was, Walmart admits that protests and strikes increase wages. So before I get to it, you know, Walmart has had this thing where if ever there's a strike, wherever there's rumors of unionization, they will, and they have, close down the Walmart and just move to some other community. And... It's, the, it's supposed to be illegal. The National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, uh, created it pursuant to the National Labor Relations Act in the 1930s. They're supposed to be prosecuting companies that do that because it's union busting. It's supposed to be illegal. But Walmart finds ways to weasel out of getting you know, sued or fined or whatever it is. Uh, so anyway, the idea is that, oh, you can never struggle for union rights at Walmart. Well, apparently that's not true. Here's what the piece says. For the first time ever, a strike is taking place in America aimed at the most powerful company in the economy, Walmart. Workers at Walmart stores across the country, as Josh Idelson reports, are threatening to walk out on Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year. Out of the article. And those of you who live in other countries, you must look at us on Black Friday and think that we are insane. And many people in the United States are insane. And even if we take the simple question of, will you get up at 3 a.m.? And go wait outside of Best Buy in order to get a good deal. Never mind the question of whether you're going to be trampled to death or whether people are stabbing each other over, you know, Xboxes and stuff. The very idea that you're going to get up at 3 a.m. to go save some money on a piece of consumer electronics that's going to be outdated in a year, it's just ludicrous. Hannibal Burris said, yeah, you got the good deal, but I slept in my bed all night. So amen to that. Um, so they're gonna, they might walk out on Black Friday. Uh, back to the article. These labor actions are coming on top of earlier labor actions at Walmart's warehouse contractors linked to, quote, non-payment of overtime, non-payment for all hours worked, and even pay less than the minimum wage, end quote. The possible strike could be very significant because the target of the strike is the most important driver of the race to the bottom economy. Walmart is massive. The company is the largest private employer in the U.S. with more than 2 million employees. Later in the article, according to St. Louis Federal Reserve President William Poole, the last time there was significant labor unrest at Walmart in 2006, the company raised wages at 700 stores. Later in the article, on March 27, 28, 2006, Poole said that his Walmart contact told him the company would not raise wages and was planning on moving their workforce increasingly towards part-time employment out of the article. The reason they want to do part-time employment, of course, is because they don't have to pay benefits to, to part-time employees the way they do to full-time employees. And we see this in lots of other industries. And this is why I'm always suspicious whenever jobs data comes out, because during the Clinton years, this is exactly what happened. There was this boom in job creation. Well, okay, look, if you take one full-time job, 40 hours a week with good pay and good benefits and you split it into two part-time jobs of 20 hours a week with even if you give the same pay and no benefits that's creating an extra job it didn't create an extra job it just took those resources and split it differently and the company saved the money on the benefits it's a shell game Anyway, back to the article. Uh, Poole was interested in this because of its bearing on inflation. Wages, he said, and these are for hourly workers, are absolutely flat. No increases whatsoever in the last year and no increases planned going forward. End quote. Out of the article. I heard, uh, who was it? I think it was um, uh, 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 Della Huerta, uh, the, the woman who started the um, United Farm Workers with uh, Cesar Chavez, I don't remember her name, but she she was on a panel about poverty uh, that Tavis Smiley was coordinating, and she said, "I'm pretty. I don't want to. You know, you look this up for yourselves, people. But I'm pretty sure she said, you could look it up, Eric. You have a computer, right? There. I don't have time for that. In fact, ain't nobody got time for that. I'm a busy man. I got video games to play. Um, this is my one day off, people. Get off my back." She said that if minimum wage had kept up with inflation, we'd be getting twenty dollars an hour for minimum wage right now. 
$20 an hour. Think about that. Back to the article. Um, about 20% of Walmart associates are part-time, and they are going to be increasing that share to 40% so they can staff at peak times and get more productivity out of their workforce. End quote. Just two months later, Poole offered some very different and shocking news. So this Poole dude, yeah, the, the Federal Reserve... The St. Louis Federal Reserve president uh, is the person talking about this. Um, he had contacted people. He talked to people at Walmart, executives, right? Okay, so that's who this Pool character is. So two months later, Pool offered some very different and shocking news. Quote, my Walmart contact also said that Walmart is in the process of raising starting wages in about 700 stores. This is the first time in eight years of talking with him that I've heard any comment like that. He said some of the raises are part of the Walmart, I'll call it social political agenda, because of all the controversy about Walmart. So there it is, people. Look, the pressure works. Don't believe the hype when people tell you it won't do any good and blah, blah. And don't get me wrong. You know, if Walmart threatens to close a store, you know, hey, I'm not going to try to be part of that. I don't want to get people to lose their jobs. But it definitely shows that public controversy and comment from consumers can do a lot. And so we have a responsibility as consumers. If we care at all about the people who work at Walmart and we think they deserve a living wage, which they do, we owe it to ourselves and to them to let Walmart know that this is what we're demanding because obviously it bears fruit. We have to let them know what's going on. Phil Olson, who sent me a thing about the revisionaries, and there's this movie coming out. Uh, it's a documentary about um, the theory of evolution and a rewrite of American history are caught in the crosshairs when an unabashed creationist seeks re-election as chairman of America's most influential board of education. And this is about Texas, because Texas, if you don't know, is the place where all the textbooks in the United States are decided. They, th this Board of Education has all the cards when it comes to how textbooks get written and therefore what children learn about things like evolution and U.S. history, and they squabble over everything, every single word, every single mention of people like Crispus Attucks or Frederick Douglass or you know Harvey Milk or whatever it is. They get to s decide it all. And as you can imagine, this Texas school board is not the most progressive group of people in the history of the world. So... Uh, what they say goes in the textbooks is what ends up in the textbooks. And uh, and for the most part, because these textbook companies that write for this one school board, uh, ha they sell the, the school books then to every other school district in America. Therefore, this school board gets to decide what gets into every textbook in the country. You know, when I say every, I mean, you know, 90% of them or whatever. But so this movie looks fascinating because it looks at that process and how these people have so much power and what they do with it and who the people are. Uh, it's like the people in uh, the guy who recently said that, oh, if it's a rape, then the uh, God meant for it to happen. That dude, I don't even know his name. It's, uh, Moorlock, whatever his name was. Stephen Colbert did a great bit about Moorlock or whatever his name is. Um, so anyway, that looks like an interesting movie about education. And then Morgan O, also uh, no relation to Phil O, but Morgan O let me know about this movie called Detachment which is about, it's a fictional movie, but it's about this substitute teacher who bounces from place to place, and then he makes contact with this one group of kids, and he has, forms a real bond with them. And it sounds a lot like the Mr. Bergstrom episode of The Simpsons, so, I, you know, at the sound, at the risk of sounding like I'm quoting South Park, Simpsons did it! 
But uh, it was still, it looks like a cool movie. I want to check it out before I really comment on it. But the nicest thing about it was, this is just so sweet. Morgan O posted on Facebook about this movie, and she said, it reminded me of Mr. P., and these are her words, the best teacher ever. And I was like, oh, thank you so much, Morgan. And other people agree with that. And it, I was, it felt very good to see that. So I'll tell you, this is the honest truth right here. Teaching is hard work. It requires getting up. I have a to-do list in my brain all the time that's adding things to it. And uh, it's shouting at me about the things I need to make sure I do. And you can't just turn that off in the evening or in the morning when you're trying to sleep or on the weekends. You're constantly thinking, I got to get that thing copied. I got to make sure I send that thing to that teacher. I got to make sure I talk to that kid third hour. I got to find out who gave me that paper without the name on it. I got to make sure I update this website. I got to make sure I make this quiz. All that stuff constantly going on like that. And the only reason I mention it is because, you know, I don't do it for the pay. I mean, I, I got to get paid, but that's not why I'm in it, right? If I were really looking to get paid, I'd be doing something else. I don't do it for, um, you know, uh, awards or nothing because I believe all teaching awards are hooey in the first place. Uh, I swear to God, this is true. I swear to Jeebus, Allah, Buddha, Ragnarok, whatever. Th- this is truth. I do it for stuff like that. Those moments when people give thanks for my teaching, that's what it's all about. That's why I do it. So every student who's ever given thanks, I thank you. And I I tell you for real, that's what keeps me going. And so if any of you have ever had a teacher, I'm telling this to, not just for me, forget about me. I've got plenty to keep me going. If you've ever had a teacher that influenced you or was positive, let that person know right now. Stop the podcast, put it on pause. Just do a Google search for this person's name. Whatever teacher, your fifth grade teacher or your seventh grade math teacher or your ninth grade French teacher or your senior year English teacher or some professor in college, let them know how much you just tell them, just write them an email and say, or put it on Facebook and friend them or whatever. And just be like, look, I, I still remember your class. It was my favorite class. Thank you so much for all your awesome teaching. You have no idea what that means to teachers, okay? And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. My mom, uh, Linda P. Lavery, is the, the model that sort of inspired me to be a teacher because she dedicated her entire life to helping the kids who need it most. And I thank her every day for that because she showed me how to do it right. And then my French teacher in high school, Madame Lopez, uh, she was also incredible and awesome and magnificent and wonderful. And uh, I've let her know that. And, uh, of course, Ms. Maples, journalism teacher, Behold High School, go Bobcats, uh, which is also where Ms. Lopez was and, and I think is still. Uh, yeah, they were awesome teachers. Ms. Maples uh, was all about Henry David Thoreau. And you know what? She chewed me out when I needed to be chewed out. I was just talking about this yesterday um, because I was supposed to be taking pictures for the school paper, and I was slacking off. I was just being a slacker. I didn't have any learning differentiation problems. I didn't have any cultural connectivity difficulties. I didn't have any universal design instruction uh, inaccessibilities. No, I was slacking off. Sometimes kids just slack off. And she stepped to me and said, quit slacking off. This is unacceptable. Do your work. And that's exactly what I needed to hear. And you know what? I went out and did my work because she chewed me out. And I don't want to get chewed out anymore. So, uh, uh, yeah, whatever. You're awesome, Ms. Maples. And I haven't been able to find her. I let my mom know. I let Ms. Lopez know. I've never been able to find Ms. Maples again. 
she got married again. She changed her name. She moved away, and I've never been able to make contact. So if anybody out there has any idea where Joan Maples, who taught at Buholtz High School in the mid-'90s, where she ended up and what her name is, please have her get in touch with me somehow. ESP at FBESP.org. Eric Piotrowski, I'm on Facebook. I'd love to let her know how awesome she was and is and how much I appreciate her awesome teaching and how much I appreciate her chewing me out because I know now as a teacher that that's the worst part of teaching when you have to be a jerk and you have to actually yell at kids and you have to be a disciplinarian and but you know what sometimes you do and it's important so and parents this is true for you too I'm not a parent you know that I know of and uh it's it's the type of thing where you have to set the law down you have to be firm if a parent thinks like I'm just gonna be best friends with my kid and they'll respect me just because I'm cool your kid will eventually think of you as a doormat the way Ned Flanders does about his parents, lousy beatniks. Uh, do you realize what he just said? Uh, what do you think he said? It means he hates his parents. Oh, that's what I said. Um, yeah, if, if you, you, no, your kid, that's not helping your kid in the long run, okay? And it's certainly not helping teachers that the kid has to deal with because the kid thinks, I would deal with this teacher if he was cool, but that's not cool. So anyway, whatever. Enough of the side note. Um, thanks to Christy Crowell because she said uh, she linked to this thing called the Reformers Orthodoxy at the EducatorsRoom.com. And a very interesting piece. It's packed with data and links, and I encourage you to read the whole thing. Here is one thing that I will quote from it. School vouchers, parent triggers, merit pay, value-added ratings, for-profit online charters, and the rest of the canon of today's reform orthodoxy are the public policy equivalents of thigh masters and cordislim. No offense intended to the makers of thigh master or cordislim. They come with big promises, coordinated efforts to control media coverage, big promotional pushes, sometimes including major Hollywood non-blockbusters, <clears throat> Maggie Gyllenhaal, and a glaring lack of real, independently verified efficacy. Amen, brother and sister and everybody out there who's teaching, because it's all a bunch of get-fixed-quick fads about how education is going to get fixed, and it does not respect the actual scope Finally, of the problem. robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Thanks again to Jason for the uh, article about declassified Air Force plans for a flying saucer. This is not a joke. This is not some crazy lunatic website. This comes from CNET.com. CNET, don't play. A 1956 document entitled Project 1794, a final development summary report from the records of United States Air Force commands, activities, and organizations includes several remarkable schematics. The flying saucer was apparently meant to be contracted to now-defunct Avro Aircraft of Ontario, which is still famous in Canada for its Aero, a supersonic fighter aircraft whose production was abruptly halted in 1959. Why would the U.S. government want a flying saucer? One reason could be that as Cold War tensions heated up, there were fears that intercontinental ballistic missiles would wipe out air bases. Thus, a VTOL aircraft that could take to the skies from underground hangars without a runway would be essential. So there you go. Uh, on a more on a lighter note, in the killer robots and miscellaneous file, a Spanish woman claims to own the sun. Uh, not the sun newspaper, the sun thing in the sky that gives us life. Uh, this is from the metro.co.uk. 
there is an inf international agreement which states that no country may claim ownership of a planet or star, but it says nothing about individuals. Angelis Duran said, I'm not stupid. I know the law. I did it, but anyone else could have done it. It simply occurred to me first. <laughs> Who's got two th end of quote. Who's got two thumbs and owns the sun? This gal. The 49-year-old said she claimed ownership after reading about an American man who registered himself as the owner of the moon and most planets in our solar system. <laughs> we like the moon! Uh, that's why America's going to blow up the moon. Uh, <laughs> so people in other countries can be as crazy as Americans, but obviously we thought of it first. So really, she owes her ownership of the sun to us. We deserve some residual payments as insane Americans. Trying to be crazier than us, Spain. He's so crazy. Actually, the most deaf in his song, uh, something about thrones. Uh, that's, that's a cray. That's so cray. So that's what I say now in school. And the other one I learned about what the hip kids say is swerve. The new talk to the hand is swerve, as in you need to go around me because I'm holding my hand up here. So swerve. That's so cray. And uh, if something's good, it's sick. That was a student. Because I was like, I said, uh, I was talking to the class, and I was like, yeah, I did a remix of the Simpsons theme. And this one girl was like, really? That's sick. And I'm like, why is it sick? I think it's cool. She's like, no, no, no. It's, it's a good thing when I say it's sick. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's sick. I'm sick. Uh, <laughs> I sound kind of sick, but I'm not. I'm actually not. I'm just kind of tired. I woke up before 5.30 this morning. Saturday, 5.30? What's wrong with you? I can't sleep. That's what's wrong with me. Anyway, uh, back to the article. This woman in Spain had been uh, has been issued with a title deed from lawyers in the region of Galicia, which states that she is, quote, owner of the sun, a star of spectral type G2 located in the center of the solar system. In case anybody's wondering about which star, like, wait a minute, where is this sun that you claim to own? Uh, at an average distance of Earth of about 149 million kilometers. And I'm sorry, that lawyer, somebody needs to have a talk with him or her because... I don't know that that's really a legally binding document. And I don't know if you really should have issued that, Mr. or Madam Lawyer. Uh, Ms. Duran of Salvaterra de Mino plans to charge all users <laughs> and give half the proceeds to the Spanish government. Well, that's very nice that she's giving half the money to the Spanish government. 20% of the nation's pension fund. Awesome. 10% uh, to research and 10% to fighting world hunger. Damn, how I you know what? I kind of want to write to her and be like, "Hey, how much do you want to charge me to use the sun? How much to use the sun?" There's the title of this episode. Um the uh because I would love to have some of my money if I if I could say, "Look, I've paid to use the sun." Because I know eventually, here's the thing. Look, Halliburton is eventually going to start charging us to use the sun. And I'd much rather give my money to this woman, this crazy woman in Spain, than I would rather give it to Halliburton. Okay, so when we get to planet spaceball status, I want Ms. Duran of Salvaterra de Mino to be running the show, not Halliburton and, you know, Dick Cheney and... and all them ham rove, uh, and the last ten percent—that's going straight to her bank account. She says, "Kaching." And finally, in the miscellaneous file, uh, I want a link to this thing from Reddit because a lot of stupid things are on Reddit. Kind of sick stuff that makes you lose faith in humanity appears on Reddit. But once in a while, something totally awesome appears on Reddit. And there's this story called "Today You, Tomorrow Me" about this guy who's trying to change his tire. 
and for like four hours nobody stopped and he didn't have a jack and it was a nightmare and it was so annoying and then this family stopped of Mexican illegal immigrants and they help him change the tire and it's this beautiful story about how they don't have anything but they they still stopped to help this guy they didn't know him they don't anything about him they didn't even speak English the, the the daughter speaks English and at the end of it the dude's so grateful he's so uh, He's crying with tears of gratitude. He wants to give these people $20 for helping him, and they would not take it. He keeps begging, please take it, take it, take it, por favor, he says. With his hands out, dude just smiles, shakes his head, and with what looked like great concentration, tried his hardest to speak to me in English. Today you, tomorrow me. Rolled up his window, drove away, his daughter waving to me in the rearview mirror. Yes, People are sometimes good. Let us all be as good as that guy is. Uh, and don't give me this crap about illegal immigrants. Shut the hell up. You know what? That actually leads me right into this week's hip-hop segment because I was about to start quoting this song that I can't stop listening to. There's this dude named Bamboo. He's a South Asian dude. I don't, I don't even know where exactly he's from, but uh, I think he's in San Diego because I think this song mentions Roland in Diego, whatever. Uh, but he's got this woman on the track named Rocky Rivera who's also awesome. She's got some really cool uh, stuff on YouTube you can check out. And when I link to this, you can watch it on YouTube and then you can follow the links on the right side to see other cool stuff they've done. At one point, he's doing this freestyle with Brother Ali, and uh, there's other cool tracks that he's made. His album is called One Rifle Per Family, and I don't really agree with Violent Revolution, so I, I get a little nervous when like the the coup and, and you know other people are talking about you know having guns and and fighting violently for social justice. But you take out the word violently, and I am 100% completely with that, fighting for social justice and struggling. And, you know, I know that Mao said power grows out of the barrel of a gun. And, and I, don't, I don't know, you know, as I once wrote, I don't, how are you going to get the man uh, out without a bloodbath? Uh, I don't know, but I'm willing to find a way. I, I put it more elegantly when I made that track back in the day. But anyway, so Bamboo and Rocky Rivera made this track called Rent Money, and I cannot stop listening to it because it is just so freaking dope. So let me play a little bit of that for you now. Southeast Asian girls with their hair down, holding back their big brothers in the lot, scrapping me from war-torn third-world countries. What's happening? I could show you what it means to be in poverty, where half a slice of bread is worth a strong arm robbery. Rubber slippers, the Jordans on your feet, smack a politician, sample the slap into a beat. If it ain't about us trying to eat, might as well not even speak. Lot of shit I don't like, so I chief Keith. The chief of police, insert whatever city, my and brother with a platoon of gorillas rotting with me. My comrades don't blow, pop sh get pro when it come to politics and all the homies need to know is get money, rent money, get money, food money, get money, money. stop taking sh from me. I can scrap like Ronda Rousey with my short ass arm bar in the first round, know that. These little birds want to chirp non-stop. But when I come around, you can hear a pin drop Self-made prodigy, underground armories One woman army, ain't no politician stopping me Mad stripes like I'm blues clues and all my bad Hit him with that voodoo! 
It's a sweet track, and the rest of the album's hit and miss. Some of the tracks are, I mean, all the tracks are awesome in terms of their content. There's one about, we need to read books, we need to read books. The problem is that the aesthetics don't work super well on all the tracks, so some of the music sounds a little weird, and it's hard to get funky with. But that track, obviously, is an example of them doing an amazing mixture of topics and content and aesthetics. And I just love the line about, I've totally memorized this line, I could tell you what it means to be in poverty where half a slice of bread is worth a strong arm robbery. So awesome. I just love it. All right, let's do the quarter of the week and then we get out of here. Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. The quote of the week comes from Mary Pettibone uh, Poole. And she was, well... Actually, I don't know who she is. The internet apparently has no idea who this woman is, and therefore neither do I, because I can't do any in, uh, research if it's not on the internet. Where else is it going to be? She wrote a book apparently called A Glass Eye at a Keyhole, but I have no idea what it's about or when it came out. Uh, I've never found a copy of this book, so maybe I should start looking in earnest and try to find a copy, because chances are that book will have some information about who she was. Because I've seen her quoted elsewhere. She appears on many websites containing quotations, and in one of my books of quotes has some stuff from her. Anyway, so I don't know who she is, but here's what she said. People who think money can do anything may very well be suspected of doing anything for money. Alright, that's it, people. Uh, show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia I've made and lots of other stuff. Shoutouts this week to everyone who sent me stuff for the show, D. Tripney and Phil O. and Turtle502 and Stu and the Duchess and Jason Garner. And shoutouts again, once again, to my mother who showed me how to be an awesome teacher and and Ms. Lopez and Ms. Um, um, Maples from journalism back in the day. And uh, a special shout-out also to my brother, Mark, because he and his wife, Janine, and their kid, Avit, had a crazy adventure trying to get settled in their new house. But they're finally settled, so peace be upon you and assalamu alaikum and all that. Um, I hope everything's settling down in Tallahassee and you're able to get some sleep, maybe. Avit, come on, give mom and dad a rest, man. They got to rest. They got to sleep. Let him sleep. You should come hang out with me, Avit. We'll both get up at 5 a.m. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's it. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things or stupid sounds I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. You're going to have to deal Listen, with I it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thank you for listening, everybody. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. I'm at esp at fbesp.org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. I actually had a student one time who asked, Hey, what's this Fargus Foundation, and can I get in touch with them so they can fund some stuff I want to do? And I was like, yeah, maybe. But I didn't have the heart to tell him that it was just like this friend of mine, Porgus Fargus. And uh, he never actually sent me anything. Because we were going to do this whole thing about like, oh, the Fargus Foundation would love to hear from you. But uh, I don't think we actually did that. Because, I don't know, maybe my friend would have sent him some money, but I doubt it. Anyway, that's it. I'm going to go eat lunch now. Booyah! Get money, rent money, food money. Uh, stop taking things from it.